It's go time. Welcome everyone to Quick Kicks here on Third Down Gamble. Don Charbon along with my very special guest from the uh, 3downnation.com and also the podcast that 3 Down Nation puts out every week. It's JC Abbott and JC, you've been here a few months ago. Let's get caught up and talk about some CFL football. I'm happy to be back, Don. Great to have you. First and foremost, this has happened a few days ago. The, I don't know what you would term it as, the resignation of Gary Stern from the Alouettes, leaving the Board of Governors of the CFL, obviously, but also resigning duties with the Alouettes, yet maintaining a 25% share ownership of the team. Where does that leave him and where does it leave the Alouettes? It's a very, very odd situation. And I don't know if there's there's quite a word for how his, his stepping away is taking place. I mean... The reality is very little changes in the short term. Gary Stern's stake in the team was always 25%, but he was the forward-facing guy in that ownership group basically from the start. You know, the other partner being his father-in-law and business partner, Sid Spiegel, who sadly passed away last year before he ever got to see the Alouettes play a game. He had the 75% stake, but wasn't really interested in in doing all the press conferences and doing all that because, I mean, at the time he purchased the team, he was 89. So I can assume that that's a pretty strenuous job for, for a guy that age to have to deal with all the media frenzy. Stern took all that on and sort of ran with it even after uh, Siegel sadly passed away last year. But now the estate wants him to take a step back. Uh, he's doing so, and you have to think that down the line, that 75% share is going to be sold off by the estate to other ownership, and that means that Gary Stern will only be a minority partner in whatever comes next. Is it a possibility? I know they want local ownership, but Ottawa Red Blacks, OSEG, would that be a model that they think the Alouettes could look at and say, hey, that's something that's pretty cool. Maybe we should try that. Potential. I mean, you, you need you need the right combination in a place. I'm not sure there's a group like that in Montreal that would be able to to come up with the funds to purchase the team. I mean, first of all, they're going to look locally and see if any of those groups are interested. I know that the Lefko brothers were another group that was sort of in the hunt before it went to Stern and Spiegel, um, who are you know native Montrealers, but have since moved down or in the Hollywood scene in in Los Angeles. I saw that my colleague with TSN, Dave Naylor, spoke with one of them uh, earlier today and, and put out on Twitter that they said they're still interested in the team if the league were to call them. So that's another possibility, perhaps a a more monetarily sound one, but. Local ownership, I think, is key. And I've I've seen it out here in BC with Amar Doman taking over the Lions franchise. You can do so many wonderful things if you have someone who's invested in the community, who has boots on the ground. I think that's where the league should go. And, and really on the league's part, I wish they had put a little bit more forethought into this because obviously with Siegel's age at the time he purchased the team this was not an unforeseen circumstance that something like this was ha would happen 
Uh, it surprises me that the league or Siegel and Stern did not have a more a, 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 a formalized transition plan in place for this scenario. If I was the league, I would have insisted it on 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 purchasing. They clearly didn't. Now we're sort of left in the lurch. You'll wonder if it would have been smarter for them to wait a little bit longer, even though they were desperate to offload the team because everyone was losing money putting uh, to support it at the time. Uh, if they waited just a little bit longer to potentially find local ownership or to hammer out uh, a formalized succession plan in the event of Siegel's death, maybe we're not in this scenario. So I think looking back, the legal have some regrets in terms of how it was handled. The league, too, I guess if there's a lesson, there's the David Braley lesson that they could have learned from the British Columbia Lions situation and how kind of complicated it became for a little while until Amar Daman finally worked his way through it. That would be some, I, I think in any business situation, even the NFL has had their days where they wish they wouldn't have done X, Y, or Z, or Z in Canada, as we would say. The They go through it as well. There's Everybody makes their mistakes, but you're right. The key is learn. Pick it up and carry it somewhere so that the next time this happens, you're aware. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I think on some level, I know there was lots of people in the Board of Governors who did not like the way Stern approached things. I know there are fans who loved it. I was sort of in the middle. I like someone who's engaged with the public, who's accessible. At the same time, I think he spent a lot of time uh, making comments maybe he shouldn't have, putting added pressure on his team, occasionally admitting ignorance on things that are pretty essential to running a football franchise. I don't think that's a good look. So I've been critical of Gary Stern for that, but they certainly want someone who's as invested as he appeared to be. And it's sad. It's almost a worse scenario for the league that he was so invested. And now this has happened because if he had gone out and done the standard ownership deal, been quietly in the background, this would be much less of a news story than it is now with him essentially deleting the Twitter account that he's been tweeting 25 times a day all season long, getting all sorts of fans riled up. They've come to expect that he's become one of the most recognizable names and faces in the entire league because of it. And now there's a little bit of panic because he has to step away. There is always that fear when change is upon you that where are we going and how is that going to impact Stern, I did follow him on Twitter. I, I got a kick out of what he was doing. I didn't mind that he was a little bit out there at times. I thought that he was engendering commentary and debate and getting the Alouettes and the CFL more front of mind, which is something they have to obviously continue to do in one way or another. The Alouettes, though, on the field at least, were starting to turn things around. And we know what happened at the beginning of the season with the coaching change. There was a lot of angst over that and upset over that. But it seems like the team itself is getting there. And if numbers in the stands improve as they showed the last time out with Ottawa, then you've got an opportunity to really present this team and say, look, look what we're doing and look what we can put in the stands. Yeah, I mean, they were making strides, at least on the attendance front. For for whatever criticisms I've, I've had of Gary Stern, and he, he was working hard at it, right? It was clear, and there was improvement in attendance throughout the season, despite some of the struggles that the Alouettes have had. So 
it's sad to see that momentum stalled. It really is. And it's unfortunate for the league in general and for that Montreal franchise. I simply hope that they can find something local there, someone who is just as invested. Because I think especially in that Montreal market where you've got Anglophone, Francophone, that whole deal to to sort of muddle through as well. Having someone local is even more important than it is in, in other CFL markets. You you look a few years back when they had Jacques Chapdelaine as interim head coach, and all of a sudden they they sold out the next game. I mean, Jacques Chapdelaine doesn't sell out any stadium in Canada except that one, but it was important to those fans because he was local, because he was francophone. If you can have an ownership group that incorpor- incorporates some of those elements, I think it would uh, it would greatly improve the support for the franchise in that city. I guess in some ways you could look at the Montreal Canadiens and look at best practices over there because they have to f- go through this all the time as well. And hopefully, though, at least in the interim, there's stability. The team will probably just run as normal. They seem to be set up well for that. And with any luck, the team on the field continues to win and that will carry its own momentum. Let's look now south of the border because early in the week, the NFL had to get down to their final 53. A lot of big name CFL vets are on that chopping block. Yeah, I mean, that seems to be the way it is every year. Now, a few of them have since landed on practice rosters, and that's actually being hammered out as we speak. Those names are just starting to roll out. So some of these players we might mention have already uh, signed back with NFL teams. I know Dakota Shepley is one you'll be very familiar with in Rigerville. He was a guy who was cut by the Seattle Seahawks, but he's now landed in Dallas with their practice roster. So he won't be available in CFL teams. But there's other linemen like Drew Desjardins, who was in Winnipeg last year, a fantastic young lineman cut earlier uh, in training camp by the New England Patriots. I mean, any CFL team would be incredibly fortunate to bring him back in. And you got players with a little bit more NFL experience, you know, the likes of James Vaughters, who could be a good, you know, end rusher or linebacker for a CFL team. Um, lots of, of of names in in, in that ilk um, that are important for teams to bring in if you're in the playoff hunt to be able to find space on your roster for some of these cuts because uh, it can really change your playoff push. Being assigned to the practice roster though in the NFL is not the greatest situation to be in. Clearly, you know that you're not going to be on the field. Your stock is low. Where do you go from there? Because more likely than not, unless injuries just gut the team, you're not going to be playing this season. Yeah, it's it's difficult to get on the field as a practice roster player. It certainly is. I think what people don't appreciate maybe from afar is just how uh, how dramatically the compensation for for the NFL has changed over the years. So it used to be players would, for the CFL would turn down some of those practice roster spots for that reason because they knew okay, I've got a chance to go play and, and see real playing time in Canada for, you know, uh, equivalent money. I think Derek Dennis uh, earlier this week tweeted out how, you know, he made $120,000 when he was on the practice lo- roster back in the day. And and so it made sense to, to come to Canada. Now that number is basically doubled and it's going up again next year. So they're making, if if you're just a pure rookie, if you're not a vested veteran, which means you haven't spent three seasons, you make $207,000 on a full full season 
uh, on the practice roster. If you are a vested veteran and you get one of those veteran practice roster spots, it can be upwards of $300,000. So that's USD as well, which obviously affects conversion and taxes and all of that. So it's it's still incredibly lucrative compared to most CFL contracts. So you really have to want to be on the field desperately if you're going to turn down that money and the chance to protect potentially get back on an active roster. For a lot of these guys, they'll hang on as as long as possible. You, you can't blame them because of how much different the money is. And that's not the CFL's fault. By any stretch of the, the imagination, right? I think people get critical of the league because they can't pay this, they can't pay that. That's not their fault. They've actually improved financially dramatically. The compensation has gone up. It's just the NFL is a monopoly that's essentially one capitalism. I mean, they did, they've just dug it. Like they dominate the entire globe. They're better than any sports league in the world in that regard. There is no way you're going to compete financially with them, and it gets better every single season because of the TV money that they bring in. So um, there will be a couple street guys that that come up here uh, fairly quickly, I assume. But there's other guys who are going to have you know at least another season in the NFL, clinging on to that practice roster money. Fair enough. The one thing you're right about how giant the NFL is. It's it's clearly the elephant that dominates every room that it's in. But the one thing I think also that goes well for the CFL is it's a different game and it requires a different type of athlete. So not necessarily do you fit an NFL mold if you're this size, this fast, etc. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there is changes and, and sometimes that's unfortunate for some guys. You could be a fantastic nose tackle and just not quite good enough for the NFL, but you know, a very talented player. You're never going to make the CFL as a 350 pound nose tackle. I'm sorry. It's not going to happen. Or if you're a fullback or a long snapper or a tight end, right? Those opportunities aren't going to be there for you. But if you're a smaller receiver or, you know, uh, sort of a tweener pass rusher type, a, a guy who's maybe a slower box safety. You can come and play linebacker in the CFL because you don't require as much size. Those things are a major factor in scouting and recruiting players to the CFL. Now, I will say some of that has changed as well because the NFL game has become a lot closer to the CFL in recent years as it's transitioned into more of a passing league. It's no longer three yards and a cloud of dust. Now there are still differences, but they are taking some of those smaller body types that used to be always exclusively to the CFL almost instantly to start their careers. They will take those guys. They're desperate for pass rushers. They'll take tweeners that used to have to go to Canada. You know, you look at receivers, Cooper cup, is a guy who's arguably the best receiver in the entire NFL right now. Well, the BC Lions had him neglisted at college in, in college because they thought, wow, this is a small school guy from Eastern Washington who's undersized, sort of a slot receiver, runs great routes, but doesn't have you know ideal skill set for the NFL. In any other decade, he's a CFL player. Right now, he's the best receiver in the NFL because they've started to look past some of the some of those things. And you see it most with the quarterback position where they're taking guys who size wise, skill set wise used to be CFL quarterbacks for as long as this league has been around. Now the NFL has clued into the fact that, Oh, those guys can win. They can throw the football. If we build an offense around them, it's okay. If they don't 
stand at you know six foot four and two hundred twenty five pounds. We can take smaller guys and make use of them. Nathan Rourke is out with the BC Lions. He's had his surgery. Uh, looks like everything went well with that. But then BC has a need. And Montreal, who had placed Vernon Adams Jr. on the sixth game, and I kind of thought at the time the only reason they were doing that was to keep him off the field so they could eventually trade him. There it is. Uh, the Alouettes and the Lions make that deal. Yeah, it's a, it's a big one for BC. Now, selfishly, I w- I'm a big Michael O'Connor guy because uh, I arrived at UBC uh for my own schooling the same year that Michael O'Connor did and won the Vanier Cup. So I've quite literally seen every game that Michael O'Connor has played in his college career and now his pro career. Uh, But it was clear from that game when O'Connor got hurt and Antonio Pipkin had to go in as the third stringer and didn't look great that BC didn't have the quarterbacking they needed to keep winning with the roster that they have, which is incredibly talented. Vernon Adams Jr. can be that stopgap guy. and He's the one I would have chosen with. I know there's probably a, a couple other quarterbacks that you could have uh, taken a peek at, but he's a guy that is probably, he's very inconsistent. You could almost describe him as chaotic sometimes in his play style, but at his very high end, he'll win you games, right? He is that exciting. He can make those plays. So if you're the BC Lions, you're, you're bringing a guy in that you're begging on making just enough plays at the right moments to take your team over the top. Cause you had a guy who was elevating everybody in Nathan Rourke, who's having one of the greatest seasons we've ever seen in the CFL. Vernon Adams Jr. Is not going to do that for you, but he may get hot at the exact right moment in that playoff game or, or that elimination game. He's going to come in and elevate his game just enough to make the plays you need to get to the Grey Cup or get where you need to be with this roster. And that's their hope with this move. Listening to some receivers that had gone to Montreal, they had always pointed to Vernon Adams Jr. as a winner. And that's the type of guy you want to follow. Now that BC has him in their fold, I'm not sure where he's going to fit in immediately because depending on how hurt O'Connor is, he may be available for their next game. But if not, then do you put him ahead of Pipkin already? I would personally. Um, my, what I suspect is that O'Connor's going to be healthy after this bye week and they give him one more opportunity simply because, you know, Adams has to learn the playbook. Now, the added wrinkle into this is BC's next game is against Montreal in Montreal. So if they want to start VA, it's going to be a revenge game right off the bat, which could be an incredible storyline. So as a member of the media, uh, let's please do that because uh, that would give me endless content. Now, personally, I would stick O'Connor back and give him one more shot to show us what he can do. Uh, but this is going to be Vernon Adams' team at some point. I think it's virtually guaranteed. And in two weeks' time would be my guess. He's going to be running this show for the rest of the season. Sadly for the Lions, they've lost two quarterbacks to the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. I'm sure they're glad they don't have them on their schedule anymore. Yeah, yeah, very much so. <laughs> Speaking of the Rough Riders, we've, their head coach has got COVID, according to the team. So that's going to impact Labor Day weekend. As we head into this second half of the season, Winnipeg is doing what they're expected to do. They're on top. They're, they've only got the one loss. Where do the rest of the 
teams in the West fall? Is there somebody that's going to pick up the opportunity because BC may be stumbling? Is it Calgary? Is it Saskatchewan? Where do we go from there? I think the changes at quarterback, the way I see it, BC has to fall. So they're no longer number two. I think VA can make them number three still. I think they're still that guy. And conversely, with Bo Levi Mitchell at the helm, Calgary was a number three. With Jake Mayer, I think they can be that number two team. So I think they can go on that run. And that's how I see them. Now, Saskatchewan is the interesting one. I think they've got talent. They might get healthier. They're inconsistent. I think they're the crossover team. I really do. I don't know if they have a chance to overtake uh, those other two teams uh, for a playoff spot in the West right now. And I'm sure there are people that will say they would prefer to go out East for the playoffs. Although historically that hasn't been a good track. And then Edmonton, their Taylor Cornelius has some improvement at quarterback, but that roster is just not good enough right now. And that's the Frank reality. Uh, we knew there was going to be growing pains with Chris Jones. They can rattle off the occasional win, but uh, they're just not deep enough. There's too much turnover. Um, they're too inconsistent to really be a contender in my eyes. Edmonton, of course, losing to Ottawa in their last home game. The Elks have yet to win at home. Ottawa has yet to win at home. What is up with home field advantage? It's 25 of 46 as we speak, road wins. I cannot explain it. I have no idea. Now, for Edmonton and Ottawa, they just seem like they're cursed. I think maybe in Edmonton, part of it has been seeing the decline. That is a massive stadium. I love Commonwealth Stadium. As the team has not been very good, they're struggling for attendance in a stadium that at the best of times, even when the Elks were leading the league in attendance, was half full. You you could get 35,000 people in that stadium and it seats 60. So you have the best attendance in the league and it looks half full. Well, now... You know, they're reporting, you know, 20 odd thousand in there every game. That's a lot of paper tickets, season ticket holders who aren't bothering to show up anymore. If you've got under 20,000 in a 60,000 seat stadium, I wonder as a player how deflating that might be, especially when that crowd turns against you. There's not very many people want to watch you and they don't like you at the same time. I imagine it's not a fantastic place to play right now. So perhaps that has a role in it. Conversely, Ottawa still maintains good crowds as a pop and vibe and TD place. And they're having those same struggles, I think, in part because they're just not a very good football team and they're not well coached right now. It's hard to explain just this this trend of teams losing at home because traditionally that hasn't been the case. Commonwealth Stadium, BC Place, Olympic Stadium, and at the time skydome canada was building these ginormous stadiums it doesn't seem to fit the mold of where most of sport is going now that the smaller stadium the more comfortable confines regina's thirty-five thousand, winnipeg's thirty-five thousand. keep them around thirty thousand, and a 20 to twenty-five thousand seat attendance is huge exactly yeah we're never gonna be a country that gets 60,000 people and stands again. I, I just don't believe that. The way people consume sports has changed. There's too many options. It's too easy to be at home. You know, when people were coming out in droves, you know, there was one entertainment option. You go and you see it, right? Now there is a dozen different options. And it, and it hurts the CFL, quite frankly, and, and they have to address that. 
they can't be a gate-driven model anymore and they can't have massive stadiums that seat insane amounts of people. I mean, with the exception of Grey Cup, and even their attendance is slowly uh, declining as well, you're not going to get those massive numbers. And I think that's okay. I know there are people who panic about that and think it's a crisis. As long as you adapt your business model accordingly, which sometimes the CFL has been slow to do, if you acknowledge the fact that it's no longer a butts in seats market, it's no longer a butts in seats economy, then you are better off for it in my mind. And and part of that's recognizing that in the future, when we get some newer stadiums down the line, they have to be those smaller, more intimate venues. Michael Lisko, who was the commissioner a long time ago, had indicated at that time that if you create an economic model of 25,000 per game, make that your break-even, then you you should be good to go. One could argue maybe even 20,000 would be more realistic. If you can find that bottom line, then it would make sense. Even in British Columbia, where I was at the game on the previous weekend, huge crowd there, but nobody was in the upper bowl. Yeah. yeah well, that's the thing, right? They That was a fantastic crowd for this past game. They, they came very close to, to filling the lower bowl, which is been a big win win for the BC Lions in recent history. Their biggest crowd of the season, I think the league's biggest crowd thus far, was week one when they had one Republican for a concert pregame, and they actually got some people up in the lower bowl. But I can remember sitting there thinking, wow, this is the biggest crowd we've had in like eight years. It's fantastic. It's the biggest crowd anywhere in the league. And it still looks kind of empty because the stadium is too big for this. You know, it's a fantastic. We got 35,000 people rocking out more invested in the BC Lions than ever before. But if you're a casual viewer and you're coming in there, your first instinct is going to be like, wow, there's a lot of empty seats because you don't have that context to understand it. And sometimes that can turn people off. This is out of the league's control in some of these venues, obviously, like BC Place. The Lions didn't build that. That's a that's a provincially run facility. So they don't control that in any stretch of the imagination. But in the future, there's not a lot of events that are going to fill up a stadium like that ever. And, and when they are, they're one-off events that you could potentially expand smaller stadiums to accommodate. So it's it's got to be a change in thinking around the country, in my mind. Out East. There's a muddle of teams that are trying to get themselves into the playoffs. Ottawa's big win in Edmonton puts them sort of back into the conversation. Toronto is so inconsistent. Hamilton can't play two halves. The Alouettes of the four out there seem to be the ones that are getting it together. Who's coming out of the East? Who's going to finish first? Who's going to be the maybe two also-rans? In terms of consistency I, I think Toronto probably comes out of the east right now uh, I mean they're leading it for a reason I still don't like their team they they're you know up one week down the next I can't get a read on them but I think what we saw in the second half against Hamilton was the potential that they have and they look very good in that second half sort of putting the brakes to their rival let's see if we they can follow it up this week because the last time they played Hamilton back to back they looked good in the first one and then bombed the second one so I may change my opinion after the Labor Day Classic and I reserve the right to do so Don but uh 
for right now it's them and then the Alouettes, which is remarkable to think of based on all the controversy and turmoil that has happened in Montreal of late from the ownership right now to the coaching change to the quarterbacking change. It's, it's all been rather, uh, rather tumultuous there and they're still better than the other two teams. I mean, right now, even, even from the top to bottom, I think there's coaching issues in, in the East. I really do. Um, Paul Lapolis has not been good enough in Ottawa. And I really like the guy. I liked him as an OC in Winnipeg. I liked him when he was on the PAL. He's a, he's a great dude, but it seems to be too much for him right now. And this, the decisions he's making are questionable. Obviously there's already been a coaching change in Montreal. We don't know how long Danny Machocha is going to be on that sideline. I, he keeps saying he's not going to be there next year. I don't know if I believe him or not. Uh, Hamilton, you would think, would be the strongest coaching staff there with Orlando Steinhauer, who I have a great deal of respect for, but his coordinators, particularly on offense with Tommy Condell, I don't think have done a good enough job. That team is really struggling. He might be on the hot seat, which seems ridiculous. Uh, You would have thought it was ridiculous if we said that at the beginning of the season. And then even Toronto, who is leading the division. I mean, Ryan Dinwiddie, I constantly, when I'm watching Toronto games, come away with just uh, questions about the decisions he makes in games, and uh, especially late, some of the the play-calling decisions, some of the uh, clock management decisions. He's made a a number of high-profile errors, uh, even this season and going back to last season. So, I don't know if right now any of those four teams have a guy you could look to as say, you know, that's a, a head coach I trust for, you know, the next decade, right? There's not very many of those around in the league to begin with, and I don't think there's any of them uh, out east right now. You've got the Dickinson brothers out west, and there seems to be a lot of respect for what they do, and especially Dave in Calgary, who's kept that team in the playoffs going to Grey Cups. Absolutely. I mean, Dave Dickinson is a steady hand, and I think he uh, his role is only going to grow with the Stampeders, right? Uh, there's going to come a time here when when John Huffnagel, uh, who's already uh, you know getting up there in age, is going to take a step back from his GM role, and I think Dave Dickinson is a guy who's going to be groomed for that dual role, much much in the way Wally Buongo used to do it in BC, or as Chris Jones did it in. Uh, in Saskatchewan and is now doing it in Edmonton. So his role is only going to grow. I like Craig Dickinson a lot. I know there's been some struggles in Saskatchewan, but I don't know how much of that is his fault. Um, I love the way he handles the media. I don't know if there's someone who would be better at that in Saskatchewan than him. And then, of course, Mike O'Shea is just a cut above um, everyone. I mean, he is remarkable to me. Uh, the way he's built a culture on that team uh, has been really, really special. And uh, it's going to be interesting to see because most people don't realize this. Mike O'Shea is in a contract year, and he has not re-upped, which is unusual for head coaches. Usually you don't let them get into the last year of their contract. So there could be other offers for Mike O'Shea after this season if someone really wanted. I don't know if he's the guy who would 
you know, take the a whole lot more money, but there's also connections there with some of the people in the front office. There could be change. You know, people have looked at Ted Gavaya as a GM candidate before, who does a lot of the contracts there in Winnipeg under Kyle Walters. If he were to get hired somewhere as a GM, does he offer a boatload of money to try and drag Mike O'Shea with them? These are some of the interesting dynamics that could happen in the offseason because he's not under contract after this year. Mike O'Shea has made a home in Winnipeg, but he is a Southern Ontario native, and he may have a lot of draw to get back to that market. Could be, could be. I mean, he's very close. I mean, it still has lots of connections at Guelph. You know, he was just on, honored in in uh, Thunder Bay for for his contributions. They named a football field after him. That's fantastic. He also has. Uh, a son who's playing junior football out here in BC, uh, which a lot of people don't don't realize. So he's got connections to the West Coast as well, although I don't think there'll be any vacancy there. But he's a guy who could go just about anywhere in the country. And for me, I don't think the NFL would ever look at it, but I don't know why you wouldn't. Because to me, he's a guy who could coach at any level. I, I would follow that man, and I'm not a player anymore. So uh, he'll have options. And then, I suspect he'll be back in Winnipeg. I think that's the type of guy he is. There is the possibility that Bombers fans should have in the back of their mind that this could be sort of the final year if things don't go the right way. It's something to keep an eye on going forward. He is the one person that I think understands the CFL rulebook more than anybody in this country. And he's also that quiet, comforting leader. He just instills confidence in you. Really does. And you look at some of the things, it's as simple as you look at pictures out of Winnipeg after games, and he's down in the stadium when everyone else is loading on the bus, helping the equipment managers carry bags. There's not a lot of head coaches at any level of football that are doing that sort of you know roll up your sleeves dirty work. He's out after the Grey Cup celebration at IG Field last year, you know, with his wife picking up all the garbage after all the fans. That's not the head coach's job. Most people would have left there, you know, having a few beers, celebrating. It's one of the the best moments of your career. He's taking care of the little things, and that's a testament to what he's done in Winnipeg. You're listening to Quick Kicks on Third Down Gamble. The CFL, of course, we're only about halfway getting into the two-thirds pole of the season. Already, we're starting to think about end of year and who's going to be picking up awards. Heath Graham will be joining us as well for his picks. Let's start with MOP. Nathan Rourke, I kind of imagined, was a runaway choice. I don't think his stats can carry him if he never steps on the field again this season. Or can they? Heath? (laughs) This is a really tough one to figure out. I guess at this point, you would have to lean a little bit towards Zach Kolaris repeating as MOP. There doesn't really seem to be another quarterback in my mind that is putting up MOP-type numbers. The other option is to start to look at some of those BC Lions receivers as well. Lucky Whitehead has had a good season. Dominic Rimes is having a career season as well. But at this point, I, I as much as I don't think Zach Kolaris has been lights out, he's doing enough, much like he did last year, to be the front runner now that Nathan Rourke is going to miss a good chunk of the second half of the season or perhaps the remainder of the season. 
I agree with you. It's it's probably not realistic that he wins the award after half a year. Although you know John Cornish won some awards playing only nine games. That's that's worth uh, remembering as well. But without him in the fold, you have to think that Zach Caleros gets the honors. Uh, to me, he's the clear second best quarterback in the league. He elevates that team. Uh, I don't know if there's another player right now in the league you'd consider elite besides him and Rourke at the quarterback position. So he, to me, would be the runaway favorite for the MOP uh, with Rourke out for the rest of the season. Claris has come back to the form that he showed in 2014 and 2015 before he got the knee injury where he was clearly a rising star. He seems to be playing that way again. He is, and he's so exciting. You know, he's a guy who is best outside of structure as well. You know, he makes plays with his feet. He gets the ball downfield. I there's not enough good things I can say about Zach Caleros, and and it would take some incredible play down the stretch from somebody to knock him out of that MOP spot. Uh, maybe the one guy who could do it. Uh, Kadeem Carey in Calgary, I think is an option just because of how much that offense has leaned on him. Uh, obviously he's been hurt as well. So his numbers maybe don't reflect it uh, right now, but if he can stay healthy for the last nine games of the season and put up some big numbers, he has that, that talent level, although they may use him less with Jake Mayer as the quarterback than they did with Bo Levi Mitchell. So that could play in as well. Other than that, it's very difficult to see a legitimate MOP contender other than Zach Caleros. Canadian. Heath? Top Canadian. I'm going east in this one. Curly Gittens Jr. of the Toronto Argonauts. Uh, he's over 500 yards receiving thus far. And he seems to have settled in as really that clutch possession receiver for the Toronto Argonauts. He's the guy that McLeod Bethel-Thompson is looking for on a second down and long, good hands, and, and makes those clutch catches to keep the chains moving. I think this is the one that Rourke can win with half a year. I think the voters will see what he did and, and give him most outstanding Canadian because we haven't seen anything like it. They won't care for that particular award that he missed it. We said entering the season when we did our pre uh, preseason award predictions, basically to a man at Three Down Nation, all of our contributors said Nathan Rourke wins this award for most outstanding Canadian, even if he's not very good. Now he went on a pace that was historic and and only going to be half a season, but because he's a quarterback, that's going to carry so much weight for the Vogers. So I think he really could win most outstanding Canadian without playing another down this season. Defensive player. That's a tough one. There's a lot of really good candidates. I mean, Pete Robertson in Saskatchewan has been outstanding as a pass rusher, as have both their line or all three of their linebackers there in Derek Moncrief, uh, Darnell Sankey, uh, Larry Dean, all have been worthy contenders. I know a lot of people would cast their ballot for Adam Big Hill in Winnipeg, which is never the wrong choice, right? If you're writing Adam Big Hill's name down for an award, you're probably right, no matter what season it is. Uh, I'll actually look out east for my pick because I'm going to give some love to a guy I don't think has get gotten nearly enough this season, and that's Winton McManus with the Toronto Argonauts. He has been fantastic in my mind in a defense that's not nearly as, as talented across the board as some of those other teams we've talked about. And, and he's done 
you know, everything you want from a linebacker. He's been effective as a blitzer. He had that pick six for the victory against Saskatchewan and touchdown Atlantic, which I was there for. I think he's looked really good. He's lived up to all the hype he had coming back from the NFL. So he would be my choice right now for most outstanding defensive player, which I think is probably a controversial pick. Some people would would go with the other names I've, I've mentioned, but he would be my choice. Part of that Calgary East contingent in Toronto. Heath? We've seen... Blue Bombers dominate this category in the last couple of seasons. For me this year, we're moving slightly further west, and that linebacking core for the Saskatchewan Rough Riders is the strongest in the league by far. There are some great linebackers on other teams in the league as well, but I think the the depth, that linebacking core for the Saskatchewan Rough Riders has me leaning towards Darnell Sankey. Honorable mention probably to Larry Dean and certainly a comeback player of the year if there is such an award this year. But I'm going to give Sankey the nod slightly in this one. Lineman. That's another tough one. These guys don't get enough love. I think you have to go with one of the two tackles from Calgary right now. They've been so good uh, protecting either quarterback. I mean, they've allowed the, the fewest sacks in the league. I personally would lean towards Julian Goods-Jones, their right tackle. He's a guy I think more people in in the league should recognize as a marquee name. Um, He's been hurt for the last couple of weeks, so appears to be on the road back. Um, Derek Dennis on the other side would be another completely worthy candidate uh, as well. Obviously, has won the award before, has looked just as good as he ever has on that left side and has been healthy for the whole time. So he might have the leg up uh, currently because of that. But both those tackles in Calgary, you couldn't go wrong with either of them. The much improved offense for the BC Lions, not only with that talented receiving core and the quarterback of Nathan Rourke, but to me, that offensive line has really stepped up. And I'm going to go with the leader, of that BC Lions offensive line in Suk Chung as the lineman of the year. Rookie. That's a runaway uh, ballot, I think, with with Dalton Schoen. He's been absolutely sensational. He looks like uh, a star in the making, just so effective with Zach Caleros there in that receiving core. Uh, he, he wins it running away. Even if he wasn't to play anymore, I think he's the, he's the uh, most outstanding rookie. Your turn, Heath. Yeah, I think we are on the same page on this one. Dalton Schoen of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers is at this point running away with Rookie of the Year. I don't know anybody else that is even close to what he's put up so far this season. Special teams? That could be anyone's game going for because as we know with special teams, all it takes is a couple touchdowns at the right time if you're a returner. Rene Perez has been very good at kicker. Uh, but I think it probably goes to returner. Right now, it's either Chandler Worthy or Lawrence Woods. Those are my two choices right now. Uh, Mario Alford could sneak in that conversation with another return touchdown. He's been good in Saskatchewan. Peyton Logan in Calgary is another guy who's impressed me a ton. So really, any of those guys could win it with the right game at the right time. Right now, I'm giving a slight edge to Chandler Worthy still. Interesting. Heath? Yeah, he's one of those returners that seems to be close to busting it on every kick. He's had a couple of return touchdowns already. And realistically, the kickers have not had the greatest statistical seasons so far this year. We even saw 
the robotic Lewis Ward missed too. So I think it's a return guy this year. And Chandler Worthy is the leading candidate uh, as far as the return guys so far this year. And coach of the year. Coach of the year is a repeat from last year. I think Mike O'Shea with what he's done with the Winnipeg Blue Bombers this year. They lost some key players to the NFL. They lost some players to free agency because they couldn't afford to keep every single piece of that championship team. And at this point, he's guided them to a 9-1 and record. He doesn't make a lot of mistakes as a head coach. There's been a couple of clock management issues that you could maybe second-guess him on from time to time. Game in, game out, that team is prepared, and that starts with Mike O'Shea. I will withhold judgment on that. If if the BC Lions can keep pace, right, if they can bring in VA and they show that they're still a contender, it might be Rick Campbell because no one has will have had to overcome as much as as he had. It's difficult to find someone other than Mike O'Shea that I've really been uh, impressed with across the board in terms of their coaching ability. So Mike O'Shea gets the de facto vote for me, but if BC can can keep rolling without Rourke, then potentially Rick Campbell wins the award. And that's a positive choice as well. It's hard to argue really with any of your picks. I would not be surprised if things continue the way they are if any of these guys come home with the hardware on that awards banquet night at uh, CFL Grey Cup weekend. Thank you, Heath, for stopping by. I appreciate you making the extra effort to be a part of this. JC, the big stories as these teams make the push for the playoffs. I think it's going to be quarterbacking, right? The changes that have already been made, the changes that could still be made, who steps up in the second half of the season, right? The quarterbacking, uh, there's no secret. It hasn't been good enough across the league with a couple of notable exceptions. Everyone has to be better. There have been some jobs that have changed hands already. There could be more in the offing. You know, how long does Dane Evans keep his job in Hamilton? He's very fortunate that Matthew Schiltz has has a wrist injury right now. Otherwise, he would have already lost it. Cody Fajardo has been pulled already once. You know, does it happen again? Can he keep his job? It's a difficult situation there in Saskatchewan with all that pressure. Uh, it's going to be quarterbacks. No matter where you are in the country, the story will be, is your guy good enough to get you to a great cup? And if he's not, is there another person in the building who gives you another shot? JC, of course, people can follow you on 3 com and with the podcast, 3 Nation podcast, where else can people find and follow you? Uh, I'm on Twitter, at the JC Abbott. Follow me there. I'm also on Instagram, but I don't ever use it. Best to stick to Twitter. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. We'll have to catch up to you at the end of the season and see how this all played out. I would love that. It was a pleasure to be back. Thank you for listening to our show. Third Down Gamble is hosted on Podbean and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter at Third Down Gamble. Join us again, the Third Down Gamble podcast, audio worth watching. Third Down Gamble uses the expert resources provided by Canadian Football League Player and Game Statistics for analytics, game notes, and statistics, and 3downnation.com for news, insight, and in-depth analysis. 
please visit cfl.ca and 3downnation.com for the most up-to-date information on the Canadian Football League.